0: Well, let's turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. Reading, or looking from verse 30 to the end. Atheists and skeptics love bits of the Bible like this. They point at them and say, see, the Bible is grotesque. The Bible is vile. It's full of immoral behavior. Who in their right mind would want to read a book like this, much less base their life on it? They might even add, depending on how much they knew their Bibles, and God even describes Lot as a righteous man. So clearly God sanctions this sort of behavior. Well, what are we to say? Well, to see the Bible like that is to misunderstand what it is. The Bible is not a how-to guide. The Bible is more like a medical textbook. It's describing our illness, our disease, sin. It describes its symptoms. It describes its problems, its consequences to drive us to the solution, to the medication that we need to Christ. It doesn't whitewash its characters. It doesn't shy away from describing the awfulness of the sickness And one of its main aims is to show us that no one is righteous, no one is perfect. We all need God to intervene. And so in its pages we find varying degrees of flaws, even in the best of characters. And Lot is by no means one of its great heroes. A bygone generation may have seen uh, no need, and there may have been no need for such a passage to be preached on because they were living, as it were, in a setting more like Jerusalem, whereas today we're living in a setting more like Corinth or Sodom. And it is important that we read and study and learn. Three things I want us to see, really two main things, but we'll touch briefly on this first point. Lots demise. Lots demise. Lots losing. Lots going down. uh, Lots... Lot started out with so much opportunity. He accompanied his uncle Abraham from Ur, brought out of idolatry, rescued by God from the paganness of the Babylonian empire, the Assyrian empire, whatever it was in those ancient uh, days, and brought under the promise of the true God. And then he sees the provision of God that this is true that this god when he said he would bless he did it and He saw his uncle abraham's flocks and herds multiplying and his own because lot had been included in the promise and so much so that even in the part of canaan where they were there wasn't enough grazing land for both their herds and so lot uh, picks land over here and moves to it he had been so blessed by god And he had experienced also the rescue of God, not once, but twice. And now we find him living, not in Zoar, where he had asked God, could I live in that little city? It's only a small city. I could live there. He said, I'm afraid I won't make it to the mountains as I run to the mountains, afraid as if God couldn't sustain him to make it to the mountains. But now we read that he's afraid to live in Zoar and he goes to the mountains. Not because he's suddenly struck by, oh, I really must obey God. But he's just afraid. He's afraid. And he changes his mind again. And here's Lot. He's a, a weak man. Always wavering. Changing. Hesitating. Lingering. Caves in the Old Testament are either places for graves or for refugees, not for well-off wealthy men. And here he is living in a cave. The man who had been the town, the city judge, is now a refugee. What a demise. And think of his losses. He's lost, obviously, all his property, but he had already lost his credibility. He lost his wife. He lost his prospective sons-in-law. Now he's lost his peace of mind. He's fearful. He's lost his trust. He's lost his comforts. What a step down for this man who'd been the town justice. And in a wider sense, he has lost his family. What did we learn with the children? Change direction. Change your direction the little monkey was to do when he was chopping the branch on the wrong side. What does Lot not do? He doesn't change his direction. He doesn't go back to the one person that he knew in the whole world who would care for him. He doesn't run back to Abraham, his uncle, and say, I just escaped the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Could I come and stay with you? Could my girls and I stay with you? And would you provide for us just until I get back on my feet? didn't go to the man of God, to his own family member, for whatever reason. Maybe pride. Maybe his attachment to the cities of the plain. Maybe fear. He doesn't return to God's people. It's not like the prodigal son. The prodigal son in the pigsty has lost everything. Says, I will arise and go to my father. And he gets up and he runs to his father. Here's a a little application for us. We find ourselves moving away from God's people. Change direction. Get back amongst them again. Lot's demise. Lot's shame, secondly, and in more detail. Lot's shame. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse, we read verses 31 and 32. What a repulsive incident. I remember my shock first reading this as a a young person. I remember where I was and I remember thinking, surely this can't be in the Bible. But it is. But why call it Lot's shame? Surely it's the daughters who dream up the scheme and concoct the plan and carry it out. But look at Lot. What's he like? He's utterly passive. And you might say, well, why do you call it Lot's shame? Well, that's the point. He's passive. We see him here and he's he's comatose and lifeless. He doesn't even speak in this passage. What should he have been doing? He should have been out as a father seeking husbands for his wives. The children of Israel who will have been reading this as Moses writes it for them. As they've come out of Egypt and they're going into the promised land. They're reading this story. As they read it they will know the story of Abraham. Uh, sending uh, his servant to Haran, I think it's 400 miles to the north, to get a wife for his son Isaac. They will know the story of Jacob being sent by his father Isaac on that same journey so that he will not marry one of the pagan women. In their story, the Israelites know that you make every effort to get a believing wife for your children. And what have they got in their story? They've got Lot doing nothing for his children. For his daughters, that's how this is to be read and seen. Lot thinking only of himself. nah, no, he doesn't Isaac went I think four hundred miles. Abraham's about thirty miles down the road, and Lot could have gone there to find a man who would be a follower of God for his daughters, and even if he wasn't that particular about finding a believing man, he could have just gone down the road to Zor, which was even closer. But he doesn't do anything. And again, here's another challenge for us. Could it be that our sinful inactivity, not doing what God has commanded us to do, drives another person to sin? It doesn't make their sinning right, but we are partially to blame. A husband who doesn't love his wife and drives her to anger or resentment or worse. A father who is harsh with his children and exasperates them and frustrates them. There, there was a clip in a, in, a, in, a, in a program Judith and I were watching the other night where there was a young person whose father hadn't loved them and they were inclined to seek love from anybody and everybody that came across their path. Do you see how inactivity can lead and drive others to sin? And we must watch that our inactivity in any area where God calls us to be active does not cause others or push others to respond sinfully. Lot's daughters get them drunk. So they can carry out their plan. And Lot's lifeless and passive again. It's as if it's a parable for his whole life. And here is his shame. Instead of providing for his daughters. And guarding and protecting. And that doesn't exonerate his daughters. But this whole section is the closing section of Lot's life as it's recorded. What a shame. Let's note three things about Lot's daughters. That are due to Lot's failure. Although they have left Sodom, they have learnt from Sodom. The daughters' plan to get their father drunk and to lie with him is something straight from the streets of Sodom. The atmosphere of easy sexuality of Sodom has infected Lot's daughters. Here's something that is a means to an end. The abhorrence of the act doesn't even seem to register. One daughter comes out and tells the other daughter what she did and the other daughter says, well, she's not repulsed. She goes and does the same. Even the very names that they call their children seem to be a casual joke about how the children came to be. Moab means from the father. Ben-Ami means son of my kinsman. How perverse Although they've left Sodom, they haven't. Although Sodom is in ashes in reality, it's a living reality in their minds. And Matthew Henry says this, The sight of God's most tremendous judgments upon sinners will not in itself restrain evil hearts from evil practices. They had seen the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it has not impacted them one bit. Instead, much of Sodom's ethos and attitude has rubbed off on these girls. They have imbibed its values. And there is nothing of godliness in them and plenty of Sodom in their thinking. And this is such a key lesson for us today. We live in a world that is more like Sodom and Gomorrah than it was 60 years ago. What a challenge for parents and for young people, we live in a world that's hypersexualized, where pornography is rampant, where physical intimacy is seen as just a physical appetite, or even as a currency. We need to do all we can, not simply to shield our children but to cultivate in them a sense of the opposite, of the sacredness of God's gift, of drawing a line so far back from where the world draws it. We need to teach them to evaluate lyrics in songs and the contents of films and say, what is this doing to desensitize me? We need to be asking that of ourselves. What of living in this world is desensitizing us? And although Lot is described by Peter as a righteous man who is tormented by the goings-on of Sodom and Gomorrah, his torment doesn't seem to have been communicated to his children. How sad. How sad. Having stayed in Sodom for his own benefit, this poor man reaps what he is allowed to be sown. If you choose to live next to a field of dandelions and thistles, Don't be surprised when your own lawn starts to sprout with them itself. Secondly, although they have been rescued by God, they haven't learned to trust God. There's a sense of panic in what the oldest daughter says. Uh, Look at it uh, there in verse 31. One day... Uh, The oldest daughter said to the younger, Our father is old and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. The NIV softens what she says, because what she actually says, there is no man on earth to come in after the manner of all the earth. There is nobody on the earth. It's one of those massive overstatements that actually reveals what our desires are. The person who says, I'll never get married, I'll never get a job. You can see how much those things mean to them. These these girls say there's nobody on the earth to give us children. What does she do in her desperation? She's just been rescued by God. Does she wait and trust God to provide? Here's another challenge. Because this woman believes that although God is big enough to rescue her from judgment... He's not big enough to take care of a practical daily problem. And how often do we do that? We see God as big enough to get us to heaven, but He's not big enough to trust Him with the issue of today. And it's so easy to do because the issue of today is right here, and salvation's you know a future thing in our minds. We think yes, God's interested in the big picture, but He mightn't be interested in the small detail. But He is. And we need to grasp that God can be trusted in the problems of everyday life. But what stands out here is that these daughters have not learnt to trust God. They're not for trusting. They're not for being like Abraham and Sarah in the previous chapter where they've been trusting and trusting. Okay, they fell and they they fell with their, their own scheme to use Hagar. That's right and it was wrong. But even that was something that was culturally acceptable in the ancient Near East. What these daughters do was utterly, utterly inappropriate and unacceptable in the ancient Near East. They're not for trusting. It may have been that they haven't heard enough of God from their father to know that God can be trusted. Maybe they haven't seen enough of God being trusted in everyday issues to know That God can be trusted with everyday issues. And the challenge comes to all of us, whether we're parents or not. Do we live as if God can be trusted in the daily problems of life so that our children and those around us pick up that God can be trusted? What is our legacy? What are we passing on? Thirdly, although they wrong their father, they have learnt from their father. Although they wrong their father, they have learnt from their father not only Sodom that they've learned from. It's not only from their father's negative not trusting of God that they've learned from. They've positively learned from him in two ways. There is a tragic reversal here, an awful reversal. Do you remember chapter 19 earlier? Lot had offered his daughters to the men of Sodom without their consent. Now they take advantage of him without his consent. I wonder where they had learned that. Had they overheard their father make his rash and sickening offer? Where had they learnt that sexual purity was something to be treated lightly? Certainly in Sodom, but also in that awful moment, also from their father. There's a particular challenge to those of us who are men. May it never be that our children... Learn from us that sexual purity is a light thing. But there's a second way and a more subtle way that these girls have learned from their father. They've learned how to make decisions. In Genesis 13.10, we see how Lot made a decision. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord. So Lot chose for himself... The whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. He saw something he wanted and he set himself to get it with no thought of the consequences. What a tragic thing the consequences were. He saw the green fields, he saw his flocks in his mind's eye grazing there and growing fat. He saw them multiplying and selling at the market and silver changing hands and himself becoming well regarded and wealthy. And his way of thinking was go for the prize no matter what it takes. And sadly how his daughters have learned from him. Do you not see it? They're not actually interested in marriage. They just want children. There's no man around here to give us children. Not a husband they want. The man would only be a means to the goal, and because that is the goal, any man will do. They've learnt that the goal is all that matters. From whom? From their father. The consequences, the shame, having to explain to their father where on earth their children have come from, don't come into play. Only the goal, only the prize. We need to be very careful when we set our hearts on something, even a good thing, such that it becomes the driving force in our lives, the determiner of our happiness, such that we might even contemplate sinning greatly in order to get what we want. Lot saw that the land was good. Does that echo in your mind? Eve saw that the fruit. The tree was good. David saw that Bathsheba looked good. They all did wrong in order to achieve their goal. Is it any wonder John writes in 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or anything in the world? He's not talking about our families, our friends. He's talking about not even wrong things, but the things that are rooted to this world And the values of this world. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life. He unpacks it as. Lot's shame. And his daughter's sin. And then lastly. Let's think of what legacy Lot has left. Lot's legacy. This is Lot's epitaph. Lot's memorial. He stands in scripture as a beacon. Like the broken shattered hull of a ship on a rocky shoreline that warns seafarers, don't come this way. We've already thought of some of the immediate consequences of Lot's actions, but what are the long-term legacy that he leaves behind? Firstly, Lot's legacy of personal nothingness. Lot's legacy of personal nothingness. This is the last that we read of Lot. Nothing is recorded of his death. Nothing else is recorded of his life. This is his epitaph. Like what's inscribed on his gravestone. The last scene in Lot's film. It's as if the camera pans back on Lot. There he is with his daughters in the cave. And it zooms out and you see the little flicker of the firelight against the backdrop of the the lonely mountain and then the whole range of mountains and then you see the ashes of Sodom and Gomorrah in the foreground and you just have this sense of the, the bleak isolation and loneliness. That's what he's come to. He had set his sights on the world and he had the world and now he lives in a cave. That's why we read from 1 Corinthians 3. Paul writes that if anyone builds on the foundation of Christ in other words they've, they've, they've got their faith but they, they build their lives do they build with with materials at last gold and brick and stone or do they build with wood and hay and straw? He said their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If What has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. But yet he will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. I wonder if Paul had Lot in mind as he thought and as he wrote. Here is a man who built his legacy with wood and straw and hay. And when the fires of judgment came, oh, Lot escaped. Lot escaped, but he escaped as one escaping through the flames. What's left? Some total of nothingness. What a solemn warning to us there is here to ensure that we get our priorities right. You know, yes, you might say, but Lot got to heaven. But we have only the word of God to tell us that. Last week in preaching in this in Milford, somebody asked me at the end of the service, how do we know Lot was a believer? Can we be sure? And looking at Genesis, you would have to say, no. But the Holy Spirit himself tells us in 2 Peter 2 that Lot was, in fact, a righteous man. It takes God to tell us that there was the seeds of saving faith in Lot because it was so hidden by his life and by his behaviour and by his values, that nobody could look at Lot with any confidence and say, there's a man who is certain of heaven. Is that how we want to live and die? Well, let us aim to live in such a way that our priorities are right. They're not about our advancement, our education, or even our children's prospects, marriage, or children, or their, our children's education. None of these things is anything outside of God. Any one of them can drag us away and make shipwreck of us. Unless we want to leave a legacy of nothingness, we need to look at our priorities. Secondly, Lot's legacy of continuing consequences, that wasn't where it stopped. If only it had stopped there. We read on in our chapter in verses 36 and 37. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son and named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son and she named him Ben-Ammi. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Moab and Ammon, two nations, would grow from these two boys. And these two nations would plague Israel for 1,500 years. 1,500 years. 15 centuries, a millennia and a half. It is the Ammonites and the Moabites who continually attack Israel in the book of Judges. 1 Samuel, Second Samuel, 1 Kings, Second Kings... And right the way through to the end of Old Testament history, who is it? it is the thorn in the side of Nehemiah rebuilding Jerusalem? Tobiah the Ammonite. It's the worship of the Ammonite god Molech and the Moabite god Chemosh that ensnares Israel in First Kings and in Jeremiah's time. It was Moab that summoned Balaam to curse Israel in Moses' time. Here's the truth that our sin is never self-contained nor is it limited immediately to our immediate circle it can have rippling consequences here's a warning to us that our sin can endure long after we are gone what a warning what a sobering passage Here is Lot living in a cave cut off from other cities and yet his descendants will cause Israel endless trouble. Not every sin may have rippling consequences. God in his grace may prevent it rippling down through the generations but he does warn that the sins of the fathers are visited on the children to the third and fourth generation. He warns us that this happens. Oh, but thankfully there's light as we finish. Isn't it good that there's light? Lot's legacy. I've said impacted. I want, I'm going to change it to infiltrated. Infiltrated by Grace. There is somewhere else that these closing verses take us. As we zoom out from the cave and we see Lot and his his two daughters and their two little boys. And the camera pans up the Jordan Valley up towards Bethlehem. And as we zoom forward in time, we see coming, walking out of Moab, two people. There's two women, an older woman and a younger woman. And they're heading towards Bethlehem. And one of them is going to marry an Israelite land owner. And they'll have a son. Who will have a son? Who will have a son called David? And as our camera zooms on down through the corridor of time, still staying in Bethlehem, there's a descendant born to David's line. A descendant of Ruth the Moabites. A descendant of of Moab, a descendant of Lot. And Matthew chapter 1 tells us that that baby born in Bethlehem is Jesus. And there in the genealogy of Jesus is Ruth the Moabitess. Isn't that not incredible? That when Paul says in Romans five twenty, where sin abounded, grace abounded, All the more. Lot's sin does not of the last word. God shows that he can bring good out of the bleakest circumstances. Does that not shed hope into our life? For we have made mistakes. All of us. We have sinned. And we hear this and we think, Oh Lord, don't let my sin ripple down through my family. Oh Lord, will you intervene? And we see that he is a God who does precisely that. He infiltrates by grace. And does that not give us insight into our Savior's work too? It was Ruth's honor that she, the Moabite was included in the family of David, the family of the Messiah. But it was our Savior's humiliation to be born into such a line as this. A distant descendant of this grotesque debauchery And yet isn't that what Jesus is about? Coming to stand with sinners. Coming to stand with mixed up, messed up people to bring cleansing and rescue and forgiveness. Not even our worst of messes are beyond the reach of God's grace. Isn't that wonderful? So let me finish. Asking the question, what is our legacy? This morning, we are challenged to think about what we will leave behind. Will we build with precious stones and gold and stone and block? Or will we build with timber and hay and straw that will be destroyed? What will we leave behind us in terms of our impact? Will what we do for Christ... Last, If you're able to stand, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage, not because we revel in it, but because it is a warning for us sent by you in your gracious love to help us to not stray, and when we stray, to run back, to turn and to run to you again. O Lord God, help us to consider our legacy, our impact. Help us to plead with you more than we do for our families and for those that we have connection with people we work with, the people we live amongst. Help us to plead with you that we will leave a lasting legacy. And, O Father, we thank you for such a saviour as Jesus Christ who would come into the world and who would say, I am so much here to save sinners that he would be born into a family line that includes David and his sin, that includes Ruth the Moe by Tess and, by implication, Lot's daughter and her sin. That he would stand in such a family line as that. So he's saying to us that I have come to redeem sinners like this. And oh Lord God we are all sinners like that. And we praise you and worship you for such a saviour. And we thank you that his grace infiltrates even our sin. And uses it and can use it for good. And so oh Lord we plead with you that we would see that happening in our lives And in our records, Father, let us build with precious stones, with gold, with jewels, so that our work lasts for Christ's honour and Christ's glory alone. Amen.